Last week, Curtis talked about how we are invited to build our lives in such a way that we are fully engaged in the world. Our families, jobs, studies, friendships, current events and social issues, hobbies. And we are invited to do that while being deeply connected to God. A rhythm of life is a tool for exactly that purpose. It's a way to consider what we do and don't do so that our regular lives are animated by the love and grace of God. And it's the whole of our lives. Following God is about connecting with God. Certainly, it's about knowing God, God's action in history, how God's revealed in the Bible, the character of God. As a church, we have a core value of openness, and it means that we want to live knowing God, listening for what God is saying to us and to our group, looking for what God is doing in our lives and the lives of our group. Following God is about knowing God. However, at the same time, following God is also about knowing our world. It's about knowing what's going on in our city, our country, the globe, where current movements might align or run counter to the goodness and wholeness that God brings to the world. It's about considering new ideas, innovations, or discoveries that might wow us or teach us something. And our church's core value of openness also means we want to listen to and learn from what's happening in the world so that our imaginations might be stimulated, our compassion might be activated. Following God is about knowing the world around us. Now consider just a snapshot of this rhythm for Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. It's just a peak, really, this passage, but it shows Jesus with a practice that helps him know God and a practice to know the broader communities around him. He went away in silence to pray. He went around to preach to others. And the purpose of both practices was for Jesus to better move through the world in love, attuned to God's spirit. If you hang around suburban Christian subculture long enough, you might hear about this notion of one's spiritual life. The spiritual life gets described in short through a series of practices that are devotional in nature. Things like prayer, reading the Bible, journaling. And the spiritual life often includes one's choices, especially their moral choices. Now, to a Hebrew person living at the time that scripture is reflecting, this whole idea would be utterly foreign. For them, there's life. Just life. It's spiritual. And it's mundane. It's holy and it's totally regular. And the gaps in this notion of a spiritual life, they're pretty important to reflect upon for all sorts of reasons. But here are three that strike me. One, God invites us to bless the world, to bring goodness and wholeness to it, 
not to wait around until Jesus returns or we die so that we can enjoy eternity like a trophy. And often this narrow understanding of a spiritual life is only about preparing ourselves for an afterlife. Two, the moral choices that are often emphasized when a white suburban church talks about our spiritual lives, they tend to be biased towards a white understanding both of what is moral, but also of how much personal autonomy and individualism goes into our choices so that we can be good people. And that's worth poking at. Third, the actual amount of life spent living spiritually in this construct, it's an amazingly small portion of, well, the actual life that we have. The spiritual life that I first came to understand mainly consisted of about 30 minutes in the morning, and then there was the rest of my day. And they were very disintegrated from each other. Unless, of course, during that day, I had some decision about whether I would be good and do good. And beyond all that, I wonder if you share this feeling I have. Is that all? I mean, all there is to life with Jesus is this short list of activities that I add to my to-do list each day. And all I get from that is a reminder to go be good. I want more. I want to know Jesus like a real person. As my friend Amy says, the actual Jesus. And I want the bulk of my time to feel like Jesus matters. And so right now I'd like us to look at two other people in scripture. And then we'll spend some time in practice ourselves. First, about knowing God. Look at Abraham. Abraham originally doesn't know God one bit, but God calls him and Sarah to follow God to a land that will be shown to them. And Abraham and Sarah are the original people through whom Israel is formed. So along the way, Abraham comes to know this God that spoke to him. Then there's this story in Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham does what can only be called negotiating with God. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are on the verge of destruction, and Abraham hears God's concern about those places before that destruction comes. Now, as an aside, the destruction of these towns is often used as a weapon against our LGBTQ plus siblings. However, it's the injustice and the oppression and the violence that God responds to. And that feels worth noting for our community Because we believe our queer siblings were made in the image of God, and they're fully invited and able to follow Jesus and be safe and loved in our church as themselves. Now, continuing on, Abraham approached God and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, don't talk back to me, Abraham. No. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, Though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, God said, I will not destroy it. 
Once again, Abraham spoke to God. What if only 40 are found there? God said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? Now, I just have to say that Abraham has gone after him four times in a row. And if my children want something and they go round and round at least four times in a row, I find myself a little uh, irked. And yet, here we are in the passage and God answers, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham goes on now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord. What if only 20 can be found there? God said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Abraham is on the winning side of these percentages from 50 down to 20 at this point. And still he goes on, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, God left and Abraham returned home. Abraham negotiates with God, pushes back on God, and uses God's own character as a major part of his argument. Abraham knows God well enough to say, because of who you are, reconsider. And Abraham knows God well enough to know he's allowed to say all of this at all. We want a practice or two or more in our lives that gets us to an Abraham kind of place. A place where we know God's character and a place where we know we're allowed to come to God with anything. You see echoes of this same thing in the Psalms. There are so many Psalms where the writer says, God, this is who you are. And also, God, it sure doesn't seem like you are doing what you should do in light of that. And it troubles me. If we're ever going to pray authentic, vulnerable prayers, it will help if we know the God to whom we direct them. Now, on the other end, about knowing the world around us, let's look at Esther. Esther becomes queen through a patriarchal gem of a process that you can read about in scripture, and she finds herself part of the royal harem, but she's a Jew in Persia. And a man named Haman rolls out a plan to revenge himself against her uncle Mordecai by attacking all the Jewish people. And so in Esther 4, we read this. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, that is Haman's plan to destroy the Jews, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went so far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so that's what's going on in the world. And then here's Esther. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. At first, she just wanted him to stop. But then she does what all practices to better know the world have in common. She gets curious. This is, incidentally, a decent model for us as we meet people who carry pain because of the sin of the world, especially if those people are different from ourselves. And our core value of diversity 
we say means that we will honor the image of God in those who are different from ourselves, which means that when we see their pain or their righteous anger, we don't tell them to just stop or smile or, hey, God's good. We get curious and believe them. Verse 6. So Hathak went out to Mordecai. In the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said, and then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So Esther becomes aware of what's happening in the world. And then she has the chance to consider, what do I do with what I know? What do I do with what I know? And so she sends this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews together who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. So we will all fast together and seek God. And then when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. At the end of all this, if you're familiar with the story, Esther indeed does approach the king. Her life is spared, and ultimately the people are saved. And while there is a lot more happening in her story than just this slice, for our purposes today, notice, it starts with her connecting outside the comfort of the castle. Following God means knowing God better and better all the time. Following God means knowing the world better and better all the time. And the point of both is to live connected to the love God has for us and others and experience the whole of our lives as spiritual.